friends, how are y'all? Wonderful. If this is your first time here, your first time in a while, I want to introduce myself. My name is Doug. I'm the young adult pastor here at the table, and I am so excited that you've chosen to gather with, you know, 150 to 200 to 300 of your closest friends uh, to talk about how we're going to navigate love and sex and dating and marriage in Orlando over the next four weeks, right? Now, if you haven't been with us so far, if this, again, if this is maybe your first time back or first time in a while, uh, this year at the table, one of our words for the year, our phrases for the year, is this idea called uh, that we want to be a place for, uh, that's a banquet for the broken. And what I mean by that is we just admit up front that all of us, every human being who walks on planet Earth is in some way broken, broken spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. And rather than try to pretend and hide uh, that we're broken people, we just kind of embrace that because there is a, there's a key benefit of understanding our brokenness, and that is what Jesus wants to do is he wants to come into our lives, like this little broken jar here, and he wants to be the light of the world, okay? And he wants to put his light inside of us and change our lives and let that light shine through who we are and influence people around us and let his glory manifest itself in our relationships and our jobs with our coworkers, uh, in our neighborhood and our friend groups and just do things in our lives we could never imagine uh, even if I told you here today. And one of the ways we get to be broken people shining the light of Jesus is in the way we build romantic relationships Uh, in Orlando. The way Christians approach dating and love and sex and marriage is different enough to be tremendously influential. And so I want us to dial in on that over the next four weeks. And the way we're going to do that is by answering a series of questions. I just thought that was the easiest way to go. We already Google searched these things, even though we put it in safe mode so no one knows that we Google searched these things. So we're just going to talk about that really openly and really authentically over the next four weeks. Question that we're going to deal with next week is this. How in the world do you date in a godly way? Like, some of you have maybe never dated, and maybe you want to date for the first time, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some kind of GPS report to help me kind of go through this thing, right? So uh, we're going to address that next week. The following week, in week three of February, we're going to address how in the world do you know if it's time to get engaged? Like, we've been dating for a while, and now we need to get engaged and all that stuff. And then, and then finally, in week four, we're going to address this question. How in the world do you break up as a godly person? right? Like, I know I should be with him, or I know I shouldn't be with him. How do I end this thing? What's this thing going on here? How do we do that? But this week, what I want to deal with is how in the world do I function as a single person if I love Jesus? Is there something wrong with me if I'm single? Should I, does God only like dating? Like, what's the whole deal with singleness uh, as far as the Bible's concerned? And to begin dealing with that question, I want to take you guys back with me in a little experiment, and it's going to be framed around this question here. You ready? So just think about it in your own mind's eye. Uh, just get ready to go in the time machine here. And, and here's the question. Where were you, or how old were you, the first time that what you wear mattered? Right? Where were you when you began to think about clothing, and you began to become ultimately concerned with what you wear? So just think about that right there, okay? I know where I was. Uh, It was 1994, and I was in Palestine, Texas, uh, in Deep East Texas, which some of you know where that is, some of you don't. And in my town at that time period I was in, uh, I was 13, so I was in sixth grade in 1994. I'm old. Uh, And uh, just to set the scene, the Lion King is in the theaters, right? 
this new show on NBC started called Friends, yeah. right? Um, uh, there, there are these new bands who are coming on the scene. Aerosmith had just come out with a greatest hits record. Um, uh, there, there is, there's just tremendous stuff going on in 1994. In my opinion, it's the height of American culture, right? Right there in 1994. So many good films, so many good TV shows. It's amazing. And in my hometown, the thing that was popular for people to wear were these jeans called Jerbo jeans. Does anybody remember Jerbo jeans? Anybody? Anybody remember Jerbo jeans? Well, yeah, here's the thing. On the screen, you can see Jerbo jeans were famous because they put this white label that said Jerbo jeans in a very peculiar spot. You can see on here, it's on the crotch. <laughs> yeah, and so that, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I, I remember I saw them for the first time. Like, everybody is, like, looking at their zipper right now. They're like, what's going on? Okay, let's see, right? Uh, I remember the first time I was able to pr procure some Jerbo jeans uh, my mom was kind of a cheapskate mom. She wasn't really a cheapskate, but she just, she lived by this philosophy. Maybe this was your mom. Like, I'm not going to pay that much money for an article of clothing because you're going to outgrow it in six months. Anybody else have a mom like that? Right? So my mom put a cap limit of $10 on any item of clothing. It may have been $5, but I think it was $10. And so I knew this. So, like, she would go to, like, the Walmart situation or she would go to, like, the thrift store to get me stuff. Anytime I wanted shoes, I was like, I want some Nike Air Jordans. And she would come home from Payless and she would say, I got you some Mikeys. <laughs> and they have a lightning bolt on the side. That's basically a swoosh. And I would wear those to school and be like, no, these are the new thing. And all my friends were like, no, these are not the new thing. <laughs> Your mom got those at Payless for sure, which is okay. That's okay, but that's just how my situation was growing up. Anyway, so I remember I discovered this store called Burlington Coat Factory. Yeah, based on the reaction, you guys know what's up. There's this Burlington Coat Factory near my Mima's house in Dallas, Texas. And anytime we went to go see my Mima, I was like, hey, mom, why don't we go over to the Burlington Coat Factory? And one day she said, okay. And she was like, now listen, $10 max for any item of clothing. So I walked in, and on this rack in the middle of the store were Jerbo jeans. You guys know that Burlington Coat Factory sells the irregular version of clothing. So like these jeans, like one leg was a little longer than the other or whatever. But I didn't care. I was just looking at the crotch going, is there a white stripe? Yes, I'm in. That's all I wanted, right? Because I cared about fashion. And so I found this one pair of green and this one pair of denim, and they were both $5 each. And so together it was $10, and I was like, score. So I bring them to my mom. She's like, did you try them on? And I'm a man, so I lied. I went, yes, right? Because that's what men do, right? And so I, I went home. I remember I washed the jeans, got ready next day at school, show up. My sixth grade center, we had our own little sixth grade center called Washington. I show up, and I get out. This is the scene, nerdy Doug with his, like, weird glasses, and I had the chili bowl haircut. Like, I... I skateboarded to the car, the old, you know, suburban. My mom takes me, drops me off. I got my, my Ninja Turtle green Jerbo jeans on with the shirt tucked in and the braided belt that looped in because that's what was cool in 1994. And I walk out on the playground like the Emperor's New Groove, like, boom, I'm here, baby. And all my friends rush over. And have you ever seen one of those moments where dogs are like sniffing each other? Like just in a little sniff circle? That's what took place. I can only imagine what the teachers were thinking when they look out on the playground and see me come in. Because we're all looking at each other's crotches going, Jerbo jeans, cool, man. You got on yours? We're like, yeah, I got on mine too. It was so weird. But I was so happy that I finally had Jerbo jeans. Why? Because you know this. When you wear the right clothing, you project this image of yourself. 
And everybody sees it, and they're like, okay, cool. Cool crotch jeans, bro. Yeah, you're like a man now. And I'm like, yes, I am a man. And when they respond in turn, because they know what you're projecting, it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. Like, oh, I finally arrived. I have confidence. I have style. I'm here. Uh, there's this, this phrase that maybe you've heard before. The clothing makes the man. Or the clothing makes the woman. You guys heard that phrase before? Well, in sixth grade, Doug Hankins was being made by them crotch-wearing bow jeans. It was incredible. The clothing made me feel great. It made me feel like I was part of something. And you guys all know this to be true because I would guess many of you wear brand-name clothing and you consider these things in your appearance. The clothing makes the man or the woman. Well, the Apostle Paul, this guy who writes most of the New Testament, he understands this principle about clothing. And he is going to do something in the passage we're going to read today. He's going to build upon this idea of clothing to communicate something profound about our lives. And if we can lean into it, I think today it can become a helpful component of truth that will help us to navigate this interesting world of love and sex and dating in Orlando in 2019. So if you're up for that, if you have Bibles, if you have phones, you can open them to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at just verse 27 and 28. If you don't have it, that's totally fine. It'll be on your screen. Uh, it'll be in your program if you got a program when you came in. Just two questions here, or two verses rather. Paul writes this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the big idea. I'm going to tell you guys this up front. This is the big truth idea, something I think would be really important for us to just put into our brains, into our hearts, uh, and it's going to be on your screen, right? Who I am is what we should focus on. We should focus on who I am, not where I am. In this life, if we have to choose it would be so important for us to focus disproportionately more on who we are, not where we are. And anytime confusion takes place in our lives, anytime we get disoriented, it's often because we flip these two and we focus disproportionately more on where we are than who we are. What Paul tells us is who we are is most important. Where we are is also important. But the most important thing is who we are, and where we are is much, much less important. And anytime we get confused is when we flip those and we focus on where we are instead of who we are. And the reason for this is quite simple. This is this logical flow of this. Where we are is subject to change. Where we are in life is always subject to change. We're here today, we're somewhere else tomorrow, we're somewhere else a few weeks. Some of y'all are young professionals and you have this thing for the first time called money, right? You've graduated from college and you have careers and you, you have this new thing that's, that's at your disposal. Uh, you're like, I want to go somewhere and I have means to procure the plane tickets and Southwest is having a sale. So where can I go? I'll go there, right? And you just pick up and you go and you can go there. You, where you are is something that's fluid, it's subject to change, it's seasonal. But who we are especially if we know whose we are, does not change. Because what Paul tells us is if we are in Christ, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and our identity is rooted in who we are that is in Christ, then our identity will be the one constant thing we can face in this world in a sea of seasonal change. That's why we should focus on who we are, not where we are. That's the whole message. 
But I want to show you how Paul breaks this apart here. So just notice with me. The first thing he says here is who we are. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You have begun to be concerned with what you wear in terms of your identity, and you are beginning to wrap yourself in Christ. Paul is assuming this is the Christian worldview. What Christians do, if you've never met Christians before, Christians at minimum believe that who they are is in Christ. This is something uh, that sociologists call a master status. And if you've never considered this, a master status is however you answer this question whenever you introduce yourself to someone else. Imagine you're at a cocktail party, or we're Baptists, so a mocktail party, right? And so you're, you're walking around doing your little thing like, hey, okay, cool. And you inevitably have to go through the same questions, right, at these cocktail parties. And they say, well, tell me about you. Well, my name is such and such. In that very next sentence, I am, and you fill in the blank. And however you typically tend to define yourself after you mention your name, that typically tends to be closely associated with your master status. So for some of us, we say this, okay, well, my name is Doug, and I work at Disney, right? And now that becomes the thing everyone knows about you, because when they introduce you or reintroduce you at the cocktail party, right? Hey, have you met Doug over here? He works for Disney, right? And that becomes your master status. Uh, For some people, they're like this, yeah, you know, my name is Doug, and uh, I'm a runner, right? Because that's what I do. That's my activity, and that's what I want to be known by. Or maybe it's, my name is Doug, and I live in this part of town because you're proud of where you live. However you fill in the blank after my name is typically tends to be associated with your master status, the most important identity to you, that which you put on, the clothing around you, wrap yourself in this. And what Paul says is, keep in mind, focus on who you are, and who you are, if you're in Christ, is you're a Christ follower, So when you introduce yourselves at cocktail parties, you say something like this, my name is Doug, and I am a Christ follower. And so now when everyone introduces you, you go, you know Doug, he's the Christ follower. He's the Christian who goes to church, and he like really believes in Jesus. And right, So Paul's saying, this is what's most important. What is not as, as of much importance, it's still important, but maybe secondarily, is where you are in life. And notice what he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's not saying you stop becoming male and female, or Greek, or Jew, or you don't stop becoming a servant or a master, a slave, master in that case, or an employee, employer. You don't don't lose those roles, but what you do in understanding your identity is those, those roles become secondary. Those roles are seasonal, Those roles are cultural positions uh, of interpretive importance. And he's not saying they're unimportant, but he's saying they're they're not really that important compared to what your master status is in Christ. And I think we all understand this to be true. These roles, where we are in that season, these things are all subject to change. Now, you may be thinking, like, uh, well, Doug, I... I'm still male, like I'm not changing that, right? Or mm, I'm a female, I think that I'm going to be a female tomorrow, like I'm not changing that. Or, you know, I'm, I'm of this ethnic persuasion, I'm not going to change that. Paul understands this, he understands this. He's not debating that. What he is debating, specifically by lumping those first four categories with the next two, is that these things are all seasonal in nature, and depending on where you are, they become less and less important or more and more important, depending on your society. I'll give you an example. Right, uh, I met a, 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 a young woman who came in our staff recently, and so again, we're doing the introduction thing. And she tells me, "I'm like, okay, what's your name?" She says, "Such and such Kruger," and I was like, "Okay, like Freddy Kruger, cool, all right." So I was like, "Okay, so you obviously work for Universal." No, just kidding. Uh, 
So this Kruger is very German or whatever. So I said, okay, cool. What part of Germany are you from? Like that's, you know, German name. She goes, oh, no, I'm Brazilian. And I went, what? And she's like, well, I'm ethnically German, but I was born and raised in Brazil. And I was like, okay, well, what's on the cover of your passport right now? Like, help me understand that. She said, oh, it's an American passport because I married an American and now I've immigrated and I'm now American. And I was like, what did you say? Who are you from? Like, I, like what's going on? And she was like, well, I live in America, so my, I guess the top thing is that I'm American, but I'm ethnically German, but I'm culturally Brazilian. And I was like, whoa, like all these things that I would have assumed are pretty static, they're fluid. And right, that illustrates Paul's whole point. Depending on where you are, these things become much more fluid and subject to change. Now, again, let's go back to male-female. You go, well, people are always going to be male-female. But remember, what Paul is saying is that it's our cultural interpretation of the position of being male. It could be understood as masculine and feminine, and these understandings we have of being masculine and feminine. I'll give you a great example of this. When I was growing up, as I mentioned from the jeans, like what we wore is kind of the little more baggy jeans. All men and dude wore the little more baggy jeans, again, with the tucked in cross-color shirt with the braided belt, and that was the thing all through high school. That's how I skateboarded, that's how I did things, right? I remember getting into grad school, and I'm teaching part-time at this private high school. And my guys come into class one day, and they're, all, they're wearing something new that starts about 2002, 2003. And they come in, I'm like, what's going on here? And, I was like, and they, they came up to me, they're like, uh, Mr. Hankins, yeah, your jeans are weird. Uh, they're not very masculine. And I was like, bro, I'm wearing like some Jinkos. These are like super masculine. I got some Wranglers I'll wear tomorrow. Those definitely are masculine. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, no, nah, man, if you really want to be a real man, you got to go buy skinny girl jeans at Gap and wear those. <laughs> and I looked at him, I was like, excuse me, what is masculine is wearing skinny women's jeans from Gap? And he's like, yes. And I said, can you walk that logic back? He's like, you don't get it. And like goes off, right? And you guys probably all remember that when the skinny jeans came out. I think maybe Jason Lancaster was like the first subscriber to that email list, right? <laughs> Like, Jason, if you saw him, like, in the, you know, early 2000s when he's on the Warp Tour, I mean, he's basically spraying his jeans on with his boots, right? And I love Jason. This is no, no harm, no, no foul to Jason. But that was the image, and Jason can, can talk about that, that was the image of masculinity in 2005. It's a fluid concept. Socially, we reconstruct things and reinterpret things. And Paul is saying, where you are is going to determine those things. Where you are is going to change. Don't Put all your stock in where you are. Instead, focus on who you are. And anytime we flip these, anytime we confuse these, that's what leads to mass confusion, anxiety, and chaos in our lives. And let me give you an example of a time that this happened with somebody. Uh, there was a guy I know who um, you know, grew up in a family and uh, graduated high school was a little bit insecure about who he was and really unsure of that whole dynamic and got married young. He was 19, got married, went to community college, then to, you know, grad, uh, undergrad and finished his degree and um, got into law school. And for him, this was the, the most important thing in his life, getting into law school, because it finally gave him this sense of purpose and identity. When people talk to him in a bar situation, he would say, hi, my name is, and I'm a lawyer. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. So he goes to law school it changes his life, just the money that came in. He's a very successful lawyer. He got very wealthy and pretty soon was unhappy in his marriage, just started cheating on his wife and had kids and was just kind of uh, all over the place there. But he knew he was a lawyer. Well, his marriage ends. 
And now he's a lawyer who's divorced. And he's like, okay, that's really weird. And he kind of figures things out, gets remarried, hopes the new thing will stick. But then his second marriage gets into a little bit of trouble. And now he's this almost kind of wrecked up, twice married person. His legal practice was still thriving, but he wasn't happy there. And he just was just kind of disoriented about everything in life. Because he put all of his stock in where he was. He was a lawyer. He was a husband. He was a father. And none of these things were going right in his life. And he was just completely discombobulated. And I remember talking to him one day. And at this time, I was a 20-year-old. You know, as a 20-year-old. Some of you are 20 in here. But as a 20-year-old, you know everything, right? So I was a little brash and bold. I said, listen here, Dad. I know I know two things to be true about you. And he goes, you don't know anything. You haven't been to law school. And I was like, not yet. No. Um, I was like, listen, Dad, I know two things to be true. Number one, I know you don't sleep at night. And he just went. I said, and secondly, I know the reason you don't sleep. It's because you don't know who you are. And until Jesus comes into your life and saves you from yourself, you're going to be discombobulated. So the only thing you need to focus on right now is believing in Jesus and following him. And I just remember he was like, what is going on? My son is a fundamentalist. Like, this is so weird, right? So... About a month later, I get this phone call, and you guys know this story. My dad becomes a Christian. He invites Jesus to come into his life, and he's born again, and Jesus starts to do this amazing work in him, starts to build this vibrant relationship with my dad, and for the first time, he knows who he is. And I remember at his baptism, he got up and said, for most of my life, I thought I knew who I was, but now I am confident, and I know who I am. See, when you know who you are, when you know who you are, it produces a sense of confidence and calm in your life. When you know who you are, it produces just this tremendous sense of confidence and calm. Anxiety leaves, and my dad knew who it was. And what Jesus did, as soon as my dad got his identity, is it made, Jesus made him into the kind of father that he always dreamed he could be. He made my dad into the kind of husband he always dreamed he could be. He made my dad into the kind of lawyer he always dreamed he could be. He made my dad into the kind of church member and he always dreamed he could be. He made my dad into the kind of citizen of that town he always dreamed he could be. But what happened is he got his priorities right. He know, knew who he was, and therefore where he is could fall into place. Anytime we get that wrong, it confuses everything. I remember when my dad uh, first became a Christian, there was a song by Casting Crowns called Who I Am. Um, and maybe you like that song or maybe you think it's cheesy, but my dad just loved it. And I remember he sang it over and over and over again. And um, I was kind of on a different side of things. I didn't like that music, but for some reason I liked this other song that was kind of popular at the same time called As Long As You Love Me by the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. And it basically is the same idea, and I was thinking of songs we could just think about in light of this idea of what the gospel is, that God loves us and he has a plan for us, and it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done or where we've been, because as long as we, we love Jesus and know that he loves us back, that changes everything. And so I've asked Jason, the band, to actually come up and sing this song right now. And I'm just going to step off on the stage and watch because they have a really great version of this. But here's what I want to challenge you to do. Maybe you know the lyrics. Maybe you don't. I want to challenge you to think about these lyrics and listen to them as if Jesus is talking to you here tonight. Because these lyrics sound an awful lot like what Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 3. So take a listen. He's always been a friend 
risking it all in a glance And how you got me blind is still a mystery I can't get you out of my head I don't care what is written in your history As long as you're here with me don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. Who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. It's deep within me It doesn't really matter If you're on the run It seems like we're meant to be I don't care who you are Where you're from What you did As long as you love me Who you are Where you're from what you did as long as you love me who you are where you're from what you did as long as you love me who you are where you're from what you did as long as you love me Jason, Keani, and Donovan, thank you so much for that. That was awesome. Wasn't that great? What I love about that song, thinking about it from a Jesus-centered perspective, is you've got the verse, which seems like someone crying out to God and being so unbelievably mesmerized by the fact that there's something out there that loves them. And then the, the chorus sounds like God talking to the person. And if I could uh, email the Backstreet Boys, because that's what we did in 1996 when the song came out. If I could email them, I would say, hey, if you really want to make this about God, change the last part. I don't care who you are or who you think you are or where you're coming from or what you've done. Just know that I love you. Because that's the good news of Jesus. That no matter where you are today, no matter how much you've done or not done, God loves you unconditionally. And there's nothing you could ever do to earn more of that love and there's nothing you could ever do to violate that love. Our only response is to lean in like my dad did and say, Jesus, I want you to be the identity that wraps around me, and I want to follow you. And when we do that, when we understand who we are, it makes where we are much more peaceful, uh, gives us a lot more confidence, and keeps us from anxiety. And that's true in our life, of, of, of everywhere we go in life, but I want to talk to you for the remainder of the night about how this is specifically true in our dating and romantic lives, an important way to help us navigate this tricky world of love and sex in Orlando in 2019. The concern I have about most of y'all, the people that I shepherd, the people that I get to hang out with, is I see this very often play into our, uh, your romantic lives, and that is we confuse where we are with who we are when it comes to our marital status. Whenever you introduce yourself or whenever you talk to me or whenever we talk about things, you go, yeah, I know God loves me, but man, I'm not dating anybody. 
right? And, and my heart breaks. Listen, I'm not saying that, but you guys know that when those conversations kick in and it's like, listen, if I don't start dating somebody, this is like the last helicopter out of Vietnam. And if I don't jump on board, the world's gonna end, right? Global warming will take care of me before I've been on a honeymoon. Like I just, right? You just, there's just this sense of panic and the panic is there because I think what we've done is we've done this. And listen, let me just admit this. The church is terrible. The church subculture is terrible. Specifically, older married Christians are terrible about putting all this pressure on a lot of uh, our young people. Uh, you know, me, my family, Natalie and I, we're probably terrible about this because we, we can't get into a conversation with you and go, okay, cool, so tell me about your story. Well, you know, I just moved here and I'm a young professional and I work at such and such. And we're like, oh, okay. And then now there's awkwardness. And we're like, do I talk about my Jerbo jeans? I don't know what to talk about. Like, <laughs> do I go ahead and start the slideshow? That's too much too soon, right? That's like telling you I love you on the first date. Okay, hold on. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's fill in the gap. So are you seeing anyone? And immediately we move into a conversation about your marital status or your dating status. And if the answer is no, we're like, oh, okay. And then our minds were like, what's going on? Why are they not dating anybody? They seem like they're nice. Like, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of insecurity going on, right? And we're automatically in our minds just trying to fumble through things. And you guys know that people like me are doing that, right? Especially if you're single here today. And you begin to think, man, why is everyone pressuring me to date people? And then maybe you start trying to date people and maybe they say yes, or maybe they break up or whatever. And you have a couple rejections. And then you start sitting at home trying to have a quiet time reading through your Bible. And all you can think about is, is there something wrong with me? God, did I miss the boat? Have I just sinned and I don't know about it? Right? Do I need to change who I am? Like what's going on? And, and, and we as the Christian subculture, create all of this. And so let me just say this on behalf of the Christian subculture. I'm sorry. <laughs> Seriously, if you're someone who's single and not dating and not currently interested in dating, I'm sorry for the pressure historically Christians have placed on you. Because I think what we've done is we've kind of understood marital status or kind of dating status in, in this uh, social stratification system, right? Single, bad. Dating, good. Engage better, married best, right? And we communicate this with everything we do. We, we kind of assume that being single is this problem that only gets solved by marriage, right? And we communicate this over and over again. And it feels like you walk into junior high. It's the junior high cafeteria of, of dating relationships. You guys know what I'm talking about? You're at the single table and you're like opening up your snack pack and you're looking longingly over at the dating table. <laughs> And you kind of do this thing right here, and you're like, gee, if only I was dating at that table, life would be so much better, hmm, right? And then the dating people are over a little bit of the ways, and they look at you, but then they look over at the engaged table, and they're getting out their Lunchable, and they're like, hmm, if only I was at the engaged table, then life would be better. Those guys are having a lot of fun, right? And then the engaged people are looking over, but they're looking over to the married table, and they're there and they're getting their Superman lunchbox and open it up and they're going, hmm, if only we were married in a few months, then we'll have a lot of fun, right? And then the married people, the married people with no kids are looking at the engaged couple and they're looking back over to the married table with kids and they're, they're opening up their little zipper thing and they're like, ha, 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 those people are terrible. They're not having any fun. We're single and we have no kids. This is amazing. I'm just kidding. That's not what they say, right? <laughs> But here's the thing, here's the thing, and I was talking to uh, some people about today. What you guys may not understand is that people who are sitting at the married table with no kids or people who are sitting at the married table with kids, they're looking longingly at the single table, and they're going, 
Do you remember when we were single and we had money? <laughs> and we had hair. And we were about 20 pounds lighter. And we could just come and go as we please. And then they start playing the Beatles, How I Long for Yesterday. Oh, they're just, you guys should know that. You get to be that point because it's a trade-off. And we're going to talk about that next week. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. I want to make a case for singleness. And, and, and here's what I want to do. I want to say, keep in mind in this cafeteria situation that who you are is important and where you are is not as important. And you may be at the single table and thinking that's the better table, but the grass is not always greener on the other side. And either way, even if it is greener, where you are over there isn't going to change who you are. That's the most important thing. And when you get to that other table and you're looking at the other table, I know it's nice to dream and all those things, but where you are is not that important. Don't confuse those two and begin defining yourself by where you are or where you're not because we all know once comparison happens, comparison is the thief of your joy, and now you're living these anxious nights thinking something's wrong with you, and nothing's wrong with you because if you are in Christ, you have everything you need, and you have nothing to worry about, and you can lay your head on your pillow, and you can go to sleep at night. That's what it means to be secure in Christ, if you know who you are, you have security. But let me make a case for singleness while I'm on this point, okay? And, and, and this is just my particular take, both historically and biblically. And here's the case I want to make. Here's the case. I want to appeal to you, if you are single, to consider the wonderful position that you are in in Orlando in 2019. Just consider these facts, Number one, everybody is born single. I have to date, I have a friend who's an OBGYN, and I asked her one time, I said, hey, have you ever delivered a married baby? Like, did, did, it, did it come out? And they're like, what is it? And you're like, it's a husband, right? <laughs> I saw it was just a band on the finger. That's what got stuck coming down. There was just the band, right? No, there was nothing like that, right? I've never seen anybody be delivered married, right? Everybody is born single. And here's the thing, here's the next fact. Half of the people who get married will die single, okay? Widowers, widows, they will die single. And so as it stands, probably for about 45 years of the average adult life, uh, you will be spent being single. And the other 30 to 40, you will spend married. And that's most people's existence on this planet. So singleness is something we've got to become content with. And as long as we understand who we are, then that season of singleness, either before or after that we roll into, we'll be able to be secure in how we do that. Just a few more facts here just about singleness. Keep in mind that Jesus was single all his life. And he's God. So if singleness is good, for the crea- good enough for the creator of the universe, guess what? It should be good enough for us. Oh, and by the way, the Apostle Paul, who he just read, was probably single for most of his life, which is why he has so much conversation about why he wants people to remain single. Also, Mary Magdalene was single all of her life, and she played a pretty important role in the New Testament community. Also, Lydia, who in Acts chapter 16 starts the first Etsy shop and starts selling purple cloth, that girl was single. In fact, if you look at it, most of the New Testament church, or much of the New Testament church, is single. And because they're single, they're able to work, they're able to support the the community uh, and the ministry of the new Christian church. In fact, historically, historically global Christianity has almost exclusively been or majority been single. Single Christians make up a gift to the Christian body. It's good enough for Jesus. And so if you find yourself single, you have an added 
bonus, an added benefit to remember these words from Paul, that it's not where we are, it's who we are that matters. And when we embrace our singleness, or whatever season we have ourselves in, but especially our singleness, it frees us up. When we understand who we are, so where we are becomes of secondary importance. When we get that right, it frees us up to do two things really well. Number one, it frees us up to remain single. How did Jesus stay single all of his life? Not just because he was God. It's because he knew who he was, and so where he was didn't matter. When we know who we are, when we can embrace our singleness, it frees us up to stay single. It also does something else. It frees us up to be content should we consider entering into dating. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I invite you guys to pray with me, and we're going to sing a song. Jesus, I thank you as a single man for living a complete life and giving us a clear model of how we may live our lives. For my friends who are here today who maybe think that there's something wrong with them because they're not in this particular phase of life, they're not sitting at that particular table, whatever, I pray that you would help them to come around this idea that you had the Apostle Paul talk about, that who we are in Christ is so much more important than where we are, that where we are is subject to change, and you never know what God, what you might do. So help us to just really get that priority in order as we begin to think about and dream about and pray about navigating love and sex in Orlando in 2019. And as we seek to build community over the next four weeks, Jesus, would you encourage some people? Would you inspire some people? And would you surround us with a reminder of your love for your glory and for our good and for the good of this city that we love? It's in your name that we pray, amen. Hey, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song in celebration to Jesus as Jason and the band lead us.